welcome back to Crop 28. This is Jesse. I hope you enjoyed this next interview with Gertrude Kinyanji. I thought it was really amazing to speak with her and I appreciate her taking the time to do the interview. So, hope you enjoy. Okay, hello everyone. Welcome back to Crop 28. I'm really happy to be joined today by Gertrude Kenyangi, who is the founder and executive director of an organization called Support for Women in Agriculture in the Environment, which is an indigenous organization founded and owned by grassroots women in Uganda. Um, she's got over 20 years of experience doing uh, conservation and forest biodiversity, and she also holds positions on a number of groups with FAO, UNEP, and the Climate Investment Fund. Um, in 2015, she won the, or her organization won the Wangari Matai Forest Champions Award for her work in conserving forest biodiversity. So, I'm really happy to be joined by you today. Could you give me a little bit of an introduction to yourself and your organization? Yeah, my name is Gertrude Kenyanji. I come from Uganda. I work with grassroots communities that are forest dependent to establish forest resources on people's own land in order to maintain the integrity of their natural forests to be able to adapt and mitigate to climate change. We also transfer adaptation and mitigation technologies to the grassroots communities. That's in short what we do. Great, thank you. Um, and so as an organization supporting women, can you talk a little bit about how gender justice and climate justice are linked? Well, there's no gender justice without climate justice and vice versa. If we have climate justice, we must have gender justice. To be able to adapt to climate change, women must be empowered, must, we must realize gender equality, and we must empower women. Their rights to land and other productive resources must be realized. That's how we can respond to climate change. Because women are at the forefront of responding to challenges posed by climate change. If I concentrate on agriculture, for instance, they provide 70% of the labor force in agriculture and they, uh, they have uh, a disproportionate workload, so they need to have what to, what to use to fight climate change. So that's how gender justice and climate change are linked. Great, thank you. And can you talk a little bit about some of the programs that you've worked on towards gender justice and climate justice? We've done a lot of advocacy, especially at the local government level, but also at national level and at global level. At global level, we partner with global organizations, networks, such as um, Women Engage for a Common Future, Women Environment and Development Program, and we are members of the Women and Gender Constituency of the UNFCCC. So we bring our perspectives to contribute, to, to inform the, the, the advocacy. So at national level, we've been able to develop a gender, a, a, a gender mainstreaming manual for the forest sector, using our experiences, our lived experiences. We have been able to, to, to put together a gender mainstreaming manual at the national level. At a local level, we are putting it into practice. We are practicing gender equality 
we are empowering women with information we are empowering women with skills we are empowering we are recruiting uh, gender champions i mean yeah gender champions who are men who have a, a, an inclination towards gender equality and these are our ambassadors in the community they are our evidence that gender equality works that it's not about women ruling or loading it over men but it's a, a it's a question of equal opportunities and uh, it works for both male and female whilst the women are given equal opportunities because they are already involved in a lot of work in agriculture in uh, forestry in everything if they have the power to to put to work what uh, what they know to put to, to roll out their knowledge then their indigenous knowledge then with the power a lot of a, a lot more results should be achieved great thank you i was reading on your website uh, agroforestry afforestation reforestation are some of your priorities can you talk about how those contribute to women's empowerment because the forest in uganda is losing forestry forest landscapes at a very high rate yet forests are a very important means of implementation of the sdgs they provide food they provide fiber they provide a, a lot of life supporting system it's a life support system but because they are being depleted they are being degraded they are being deforested the women have responded i mean it makes the women's work very difficult they, are, they also play an important role as watersheds so when forests are not existing and non-existent we shall have problems with water and it's a, a socially constructed role for women to fetch water as such it impacts on women directly so when when they take charge of reforesting afforesting you know afforestation and reforestation restoration of the forest ecosystem they are actually saying that we know where which side our bread is buttered thank you and i think like you were talking about deforestation and you've also done a lot of work on biodiversity can you talk a bit about how agriculture has contributed to a loss of biodiversity and deforestation yeah agriculture has co contributed to loss of biodiversity because with the increase in population the high rate of population three we have 3.5 percent population growth annually and that's a very high rate so to be able to meet the food needs of this population this land is a static resource as such people are encroaching on natural forests and that's how we end up losing forest cover so if we could utilize the land more efficiently more optimally that is available the arable land that so that we don't have to encroach on forests that would be great thank you and now we can maybe talk a little about some solutions a big solution that you i've seen on your website is agroecology can you talk about how agroecology contributes to biodiversity and how it maybe can contribute to women's empowerment too yeah, agroecology is a deliberate scientific model of agriculture that works with nature. What we are practicing now on the Africa in, in uh, sub-Saharan Africa is mainly traditional agriculture. 
which is like agroecology by default. We go out there and cultivate and sow seeds, which we saved from the past uh, harvest, but without, because, not because we choose to do it, but because we don't have money to go buy fertilizer. So it's by default that we are practicing that. But now when it becomes deliberate, we are trained to recycle nutrients on the farm, to save seeds. We are trained to, uh, you know, to, to make agro, uh, agroecology work, to, to make soils rich to retain, for water retention. And uh, that one saves the, woman's, uh, the women, they reduce the women's workload. And it also helps the women be sure of the next harvest. Because with the traditional kind of agriculture, it's susceptible to the ravages of climate change. But this agroecology, by its very nature, is able to, is an adaptation measure towards climate change. Great, thank you. And I saw you said um, on your website that industrial agriculture um, is the greatest threat to agroecology. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes, industrial agriculture is a top-down approach of corporations. Suddenly, they've turned their attention, they, they've smelled profit in agriculture. Profit-oriented corporations have now seen uh, they have a profit motive and they approach us with hybrid seeds, with fertilizer, and other agricultural chemicals, pesticides, herbicides. So they, they, they want to reap big in an industry that's very vulnerable to climate change. So it's a big threat to agroecology because it, it's, a, it's also to do with power relations. These are people that come with huge vehicles, with a lot of money, and give them to governments, to research institutions, and convince them to, turn, to, to, uh, to push forward their way of thinking. But then the farmer does not have anything to bargain with. They, this is power, a power relation. So that's why we are saying it's a big threat and agroecology must step up its campaign, must step up evidence to counter industrial agriculture. Secondly, industrial agriculture promotes hybrid seeds, promotes monocrops, promotes heavy, uh, heavy uh, irrigation. And because of that, it, the irrigation is drying our aquifers and the industrial the, uh, hybrid seeds uh, you know, they, they make farmers poor because they can't be saved from the last harvest. A farmer depends on the market to obtain seeds. While in the past, we'd save from our last harvest and be able to plant seeds that, were, that are, you know, that ad have adapted to our conditions. So uh, industrial agriculture is a very, very difficult, uh, is a very big enemy to our methods. It's an enemy to food sovereignty, for instance. The moment we are, lose control of our seeds, we lose control of our food. And it, it will make us uh, go into hunger, or food shortages, or whatever. So it's a very difficult, it's a very big enemy. Thank you. Another thing I was reading about on your website was your work on urban agriculture. Can you talk about urban agriculture and how that relates to food security and women's empowerment? Carbon. Urban agriculture? Carbon. Urban? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, 
frankly speaking, I don't believe that a carbon is the solution to uh, climate change and to adaptation or mitigation of whatever nature. Because why should we look to the, the very people that caused the problem in the first place for solutions? How, how can we export carbon credits and import vulnerability? Because the trade-off between carbon sequestration and the amount that we are paid for involving ourselves in carbon sequestration for is uh, the, the trade-off is uh, not even they give us very little money for a long time of carbon sequestration so it's not fair it's not just and i think instead of even attempting to trade in in carbon credits the polluters should phase out fossil fuels and cease producing carbon it, that's the only answer but carbon credits is increasing the vulnerability of the indigenous peoples of the local community. Thank you. One other thing I'm curious about is your work on agriculture in cities, like in um, cities in Uganda. I think you were talking about um, agriculture and waste in the slums of Uganda. Can you talk a little bit about that work about agriculture in very dense, densely populated areas? Yes. Densely populated areas in Uganda, for instance, in the cities, is a very high percentage of the entire population of the city. As such, and they are populated by people who have low income, who have no steady jobs, who are susceptible to hunger and malnutrition. So, and there's a lot of waste that collects and clogs infra infrastructure. So it's a win-win situation. When we attempt to recycle that waste and, and make compost, and make um, sack gardens so that people can plant vegetables for micronutrients to help to, to, to address the hidden hunger. They call it hidden hunger because it's not obvious that you are lacking anything, but you know when you continue not to have the micronutrients in your diet, like uh, people who, who are low income usually cannot buy vegetables, fruits, but if they can grow them themselves, from the waste that is recycled, then it, it addresses their hidden hunger. Okay, thank you. Just a couple more questions. The first one is a two-part question. So I saw you uh, in an article, you were talking about the two biggest challenges to achieving the SDGs were one, a lack of resources, and two, a lack of civil society involvement. There was an article that came out recently that said um, smallholder farmers in the global south are receiving only point three percent of climate finance so let's talk about first about that lack of resources part why uh, is there such a lack of resources and how do we increase um, financing well the countries uh, the, the countries in the global north have financial resources but we have other resources the natural resources the forests we have the land we have uh, the labor even so what we are saying is that countries in the north should not pass the money in governments alone, in states. They should also make create avenues for local communities to access that money, to be able to, because we are the ones that implement, put in practice what they decide at COPs, what they decide at SDGs, what they decide at high-level political forum, 
what they decide that whatever global meeting happens, it's the communities that put it into practice. So we should not be left to work on our own while the money is put through government and by the time it goes through the entire structure, it, it trickles down to the grassroots communities, it's non-existent or it's, it's not meaningful. So they should create avenues where they can listen to what the grassroots communities are saying, what the suggestions they are making, so that they can address those directly. Thank you. And so the other part that you said was the biggest challenge to implementing the SDGs was a lack of involvement with civil society. So how have you seen that lack of involvement with civil society, grassroots, and how can we improve that? They should make a deliberate effort to, to do stakeholder mapping and judge the importance of the stakeholders in the equation. And if it's done honestly and thoroughly, then they'll be able to, to see that grassroots communities, indigenous peoples and civil society are very important, uh, are very important stakeholders in the solution in achieving the SDGs and they'll give them the importance they deserve. Thank you. And the last question for today, what are your goals for this COP, both individually in your presentations, in your meetings, and for the high-level negotiations? What are you looking to see in those? I'm looking to see that they make a definite, uh, I mean, they make a definite decision about loss and damage fund, loss and damage fund, and like I've said, they create avenues for grassroots communities, indigenous peoples, and civil society to access the funds of the, uh, of, of lo that are located for loss and damage and for other things, adaptation fund for instance, green climate fund, you know, there should be partnership, there should be uh, a good partnership between whoever is funding, whoever has advanced the money or is administering the money and the, co the indigenous peoples, local communities and civil society. And secondly, I'm looking to see that there is a gender, uh, that uh, gender is addressed. Because if we keep the whole negotiation gender neutral, then we are not, uh, we are not addressing the most important challenges that we have. Uh, the women are very important, um, a very important partner in uh, br bringing about, you know, the change that we desire. So the gender question should be should be addressed and then the funds should also go to, towards priorities you know there should be an African narrative in the location of those funds no countries are not the same they shouldn't make a one pure cures all kind of solution they should be specific to a given context and address every context as it comes yes. Thank you. And just to close out today, is there anything that you, we didn't cover that you want to talk about or any resources you want to share if people want to learn more about what we talked about today? Well, I, not at the moment. I don't think there's anything I'd like to say yet. But in the course of that, we still have a number of days and we are still looking. We are still going to meetings. We are still listening to um, uh, presentations. And then I'll be able to share a lot more once we are approaching the end of the COP.